Alright. Hi, I'm Sarah and welcome to Sarah in Tech. Today's guest is Brian De Lamont. Thanks for having me. Um, I was really interested in having you because you have a journey into tech and you've also recently started the journey into your own business. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are interested in startup life and what it looks like. Yeah, well, where to start? It has been quite a journey. Um, I just quit my job um, back in April and decided to go all in on my business idea and just said enough is enough. I'm, I'm sick and tired of uh, seeing my ideas, um, you know, not executed and, and then down the road seeing, hey, somebody took my idea. And uh, I just figured uh, I had I had so much passion built up. I just said, I got to do it. I got to go with it. I mean, I think it's very scary to quit your job and pursue your passion full time. And I think you're very, very brave and I admire you for it. Thank you. Um, so Either brave or idiotic, <laughs> but we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, I've, there's a lot of things I've learned and success is built on the back of failures. So I know not many startups succeed, but I have all the faith in you and that you will do you will succeed. And, um, yeah. Well, thank you, Sarah. <laughs> uh, so I know you have all these great ideas, but what does like a day at a startup or what, like was the catalyst to it? What finally made you say, this is enough, you know, throw your hands up and flip the table and be like, I'm going to do this. Oh, I think for me, it wasn't like so much as, a defining moment because I guess as a kid, I've always been uh, a creator or an ideator. I just love ideas. I get carried away with ideas uh, so much so that my wife will tease me saying like, what's this, what's the 3000th idea that you've had for a business? This is like every day at the dinner table. Hey, what about this idea? What about that idea? Um, and most of them are terrible, <laughs> but some of them, you know, are, they got some legs on them. And so, um, I finally started to get serious, um, especially on paternity leave. I just had my second son, the beginning, well, the end of last year, right after Christmas and, uh, had a lot of bonding time, but had a lot of time to reflect and just realize, you know, um, what makes me the happiest and, I think being the risk taker does make me really happy and having the reins. Um, I think the catalyst too has been working insanely hard for everybody. It's It's been kind of um, ingrained into me that hard work gets you somewhere. And I feel like I've gotten somewhere in my career, but it just feels like if you're going to get the most reward out of your work, you got to work for yourself. And so I got fired up. I started interviewing people started getting feedback on the idea because, you know, my background's in tech. It wasn't in uh, tenant screening or, you know, real estate, not so much. And so I uh, started getting into that and just uh, really saying, hey, you know, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? You know, and asking the question, why can't we automate this? Why hasn't somebody done this yet? Uh, trying to tackle difficult problems. Um, and I think that just kind of bubbled up to where, um, Work wasn't going so great for me. Um, there's been always, every time I get a job, a lot of promises and never a lot of follow through. So there's always, you know, getting a new job, promise the world. It's, it's like, 
I don't know, going on a first date and you think this is the best and oh my gosh, I'm going to marry this person, right? You think that with a new job, like I'm going to be here for the next five years at least. And, and then you get in, you realize, you know, there's some bad apples or your manager wasn't the person you thought they were. Uh, and I just had a, a breaking point where I just said, you know what, enough's enough. I'm going to take a risk on me. I think I deserve it. And if I fail, like you said, it is a learning moment. I'm just going to go for it. And, uh, it's not this one it'll be the next one and that is a really good attitude to have and i'm sure if not this time the next time you will be successful um it's more about persistence um is what i've learned than being in the right place at the right time and persistence or hard work is mm -hmm. usually the two factors that lead into success yeah we'll see how how it happens i'm i'm kind of just thinking well um if it's not this idea, I got uh, a lot on the back burner. So uh, it's just a matter of, I think, pushing through and finding something that's going to stick and not giving up on your dreams. I mean, the the businesses talk about it is you pivot. It's the same company, but we just decided to pivot. Yeah. And uh, been talking with a lot of people and they're like, oh, well, I we, we just pivoted. I'm like, so you completely changed your business model. And they're like, yep. And yeah. it's, it's a normal thing. It's, they don't tell you that, that behind every successful business is probably quite a few pivots. So. We have pivoted once already before <laughs> even launching. So I'm just, I'm getting used to it early on. Yeah. And being agile. Is, mm -hmm. Do you have a Jira ticket system? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the very important question. So that's really cool. That's what you have going on right now. Uh, but when did you realize that you were in love with technology? Oh, that goes way back. Back in the day, um, I was the youngest, so I didn't get a lot of computer time. Uh, but we all grew up. First computer of the family was like a, a Pentium 2 Micron PC. And my brothers would play Command and Conquer on it. And uh, I'd sneak on eventually, be able to, to play my turn. And... So since they would hog it, and every time I got in, I just did everything I could. I clicked into every single menu. I clicked into every program. I did looked at all the random files. I just wanted to know desperately how, how this worked. How could I play a video game on the screen, um, and how could it do so much? And um, so that curiosity really never went away. And, uh, and then I got into building PCs later on with uh, my best friend, uh, he was a brainiac. He's like been coding since, I don't know, he was nine years old. And I just was like, whoa, I really, really looked up to him and admired him. And so he, he got me into building PCs with his old computer equipment. And that led into doing a little bit of development work. And, um, and then really just kind of thought, wow, I, I just desperately want to know how this computer works all, you know, top to bottom. And so when looking into a career, um, I knew it, it had to be computer science for me uh, just because it, looking at everything, I, I'm a learner. I love learning. But um, after looking at every single degree out there, uh, again, when I was younger, I just thought this is the thing that I, I, I just desperately want to know how it works. You know, uh, chemistry would be cool. You know, physics is awesome. Uh, there's all sorts of I think STEM degrees that are awesome, I would have been um, really happy in them, but there's just something about like technology that um, just unlocks so much potential in the world. And 
I just love automation. Anything you can automate, I'm just all for it. Yeah, as a data scientist, I, I totally agree with automating everything. There's a model for that. Should yeah. be like my catchphrase <laughs> or something. So uh, did you ever truly feel like you know what happens inside of a computer from top to bottom now since you've been looking into it since you were eight or nine? I do. Um, I realize the answer is much more complicated now because there's so many different components and um, really, uh, I mean, the size of just, you know, for example, like the Linux kernel is just so, so huge that I think you have to specialize it if you want to actually want to um, really know what you're doing in there. But um, when I finally got to kind of some later courses and started getting into computer engineering and learned how the CPU works, and then I actually had to write a simulation of how a risk-based processor worked, and that undergrad project, that was probably the thing that was like my hardest accomplishment. Uh, my friend Ayrton at my wedding gave me the diagram of the simulation. We actually had to finish because we were staying up on Thanksgiving night uh, to actually finish this thing. And writing it all in Java and getting it to work, but actually simulated a, um, an actual processor uh, with simulation of assembly code and actually you could use it. It was, it was Turing complete and I was just so amazed by it. I was like, wow, this actually represents how a basic computer works and uh, kind of with, with everything else, programming languages and uh, really getting into not just like the high level stuff, but the low level stuff. I'm like, all right, my, my curiosity for, for that I think is a little bit satisfied and now I just like diving deep into different things. Do you have a favorite use case for technology that you're just shocked and surprised and happy about? Um, I'd say whenever you can take data or technology in general and use it to help people, uh, that's what I'm really passionate about. How can we actually take more data and help people uh, and not try to squeeze another dollar out of them because you, I don't know, um, optimize how you advertise to them, but really use that data um, and make differences in lives. Uh, so I'm trying to do that with my company. Um, I know of a few others that are doing that, uh, sometimes in the nonprofit communities, and uh, it just gets me fired up. What exactly does your startup do? Yeah, so I'd say we are the first ever tenant data company. So there's tenant screening companies. Typically, you know, everyone's familiar with them if you've rented you. You pay your $30 application fee, you don't get that apartment. You pay another one, you pay another one, you pay another one. Hundreds of dollars later, you finally get in your apartment. And you probably filled out that same application, you know, 10 times, right? And really that money is just going to a background check and a credit check. And so I just hate inefficiency. So I love automation. I hate inefficiency. I thought, I got to fix this. And so what Partner does is... We've created um, kind of like a, a super form. You're going to fill it out. Um, you actually get assigned a renter score, and then that's good among all the landlords and all the property managers. So you pay one fee. It's good for 30 days. Um, and then obviously we're tackling a lot more data than just the, the, um, like the credit and background. We're actually looking into um, eviction. We have a system to also interview um, different property managers and landlords and get them uh, feedback from 
what their experience was. So all this is going into our renter score. Um, and then that we can actually show that to the landlord or property manager and they can make a quick decision. So essentially we're trying to make it so the, um, the renters are really saving a lot of money and a lot of time. They're also getting a lot of transparency because there's kind of ratings on both sides. Um, and then the landlords are saving a ton of time because I don't know if you knew this, but you know, when you list a property on Zillow, when you list a property on Craigslist or Facebook marketplace, you just get bombarded with the hundreds of emails, um, or messages. And they all ask the same dumb questions that were already in the property listing. Um, you reply to all those, half of them don't even get back to you. So you just wasted a weekend applying to, or replying to everybody. Um, so we're trying to make it to where you get scored, then you can apply. And once you apply, the algorithm and the site already has your data, and it's on to the landlord to make that decision, a uh, quick yes or no. Um, I think it's going to be a pretty pretty big game changer, but the, the problem we're running into, or that we foresee at least, is it's a marketplace. So... You have to attract the landlords before you get the renters on. And so we decided that our first pivot was, well, let's just focus on an exceptional tenant screening process. We get these landlords to start screening their applicants through here. Then we start collecting their listings and kind of create this renter pool that can be shared. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the, uh, I don't know, the first milestone for this year that we're trying to get to. That sounds really interesting and useful. It's also starting to tackle the housing crisis that's happening here locally as well. Uh, so I think it's definitely very necessary. And I know we're not the only location in the United States that is in a housing crisis mm -hmm. where we have a backlog of about two years of individuals who are looking how they come up with that metric. I don't know. How do you know what two years of individuals looks like? But there obviously is a backlog here. Oh, definitely. And even that, I mean, like there's such a huge demand for short-term rentals right now and Airbnb, but there's so much upkeep on that. And so I'm trying to kind of make eventually like a long-term version of Airbnb that if you got a spare room, but you don't want to do the laundry every single time you have a new guest, well, go listen on partner, rent your spare room out for a year, but just be, you know, 100% confident that you know who you're renting to. I mean, I've tried to rent out a room in my house and I've gone through that process and half of the people scare me and I don't yeah. want them near my my toddler. Uh, so I can I would definitely really appreciate like being like, oh, this person doesn't have any felonies. What a good fact to know. Because it was concerning that they said they only wanted to pay in cash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that one's always. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of red flags out there. And I think the I don't know if it was funny or scary, but. I went on a Facebook group of landlords. There's 30,000 landlords in there. And I just asked the question, how do you screen your tenants? And um, a lot of them had some pretty good advice. You know, check your credit score, check this, check that. Uh, a ton of them were illegal, though. They were like, I only rent to these people. Um, I only rent between these ages. And that was like, whoa, oh, my gosh. Like, do you realize you just broke fair housing laws by, you know, a billion? Um, and so that's another thing that we're trying to do is like, let's make it fair for everybody and make it 100% uh, just transparent. Um, 
and yeah, not have and not have not be uncomfortable in your own house if you're in a room. I get that. <laughs> I chose not to move forward with that process just because of the responses I got on Craigslist. No one made me feel even remotely like mm-hmm. comfortable. So, uh, but that is a very interesting and useful uh, product. I I'm interested in possibly using it myself. Thanks. <laughs> uh, hopefully, we'll get it off the ground. It's I think the biggest uh, lesson that we've had so far is. External dependencies cannot be managed. Like, I mean, they can, but they're just really, really hard. Someone gives you a deadline outside of your organization, so you're thinking, okay, that's the date we're going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. You start making plans off that. That one company or that one individual doesn't deliver, and it's like, well, now what? And so I've just learned um, probably how to handle when things don't go my way uh, that's probably been my greatest weakness, and now I'm kind of facing it up front and learning really fast. Like, it's okay for it to not go my way 100% of the time. Yeah, usually you have to have plan A, B, and all the way through Z, and figuring out things to wait, excuse me, figuring out how to make things work. And sometimes it's just a lot of chewing gum and a few pieces of string, and you're like, it yeah. works! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But that's, you know, you know, when you go through and you write some code and it's not perfect, mm. you're like, I'll go back and fix it later. Yeah. And then it's five years later and you still haven't fixed it. But it works. <laughs> it, it still works and, and no mm. one looks at it until it breaks. <laughs> yep. That's been uh, another huge lesson, I think, is all these companies that I've worked for, they, every company has tech debt. And I always knew that. But I've always been really, really hypercritical and judgmental. Like, um, hey, your uh, controller code right here is 2,000 lines long, and it's for one controller. How is this manageable? And and I would go off the rails almost of, like, code maintainability, and you don't have any unit tests. You don't have integration tests. Um, how do you even test? You know, how do you even roll back? There's a lot of these things that I can kind of consider, like, good code hygiene, um, so I was really judgmental and then starting a company, I realized something light bulb went off and it was like, but wait a minute, they actually built a company that's profitable and supports, you know, dozens or potentially even hundreds of employees and I'm not profitable yet. So how can I judge? So that was like a huge lesson. So anyone watching, I'm sorry if I was a jerk, <laughs> the thousand lines of controller code. I swear, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I've even asked someone, um, they had feature leakage, so they had mm-hmm. part of the what calculated to their output in their input. And Ooh. so they were getting 99% accuracy, and I was like, don't you think that's kind of cheating? And they're like, no. I'm like, oh, mm. okay. Well, have fun putting it in production, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I mean, if it's working for them, right? (laughs) (laughs) Might not do such a good job predicting, but. That's true. Um, Yeah, I got some of those stories where you're just, like, scratching your head looking at it, but at the end of the day, you're like, well, I mean, it could be worse, right? (laughs) (laughs) It could be on fire. Now it's just soggy and not working right. You could just flip a coin and guess that way, right? That's true. So, I don't know if you know this, but 
the random number generators and computers are not truly random? I read a little bit about that so much that uh, I guess somebody who is playing some of these lottery systems were able to find, I don't know, the certain prime numbers. I don't know. I, I sound like an idiot now, but they're finding the pseudo random something to where they were getting closer in their guesses and made out like a bandit. Didn't we do like a lotto pool like a couple of years ago? Yes. <laughs> and then I was like, I think it's a Poisson distribution because that's what the data was pointing at. And we made a, made a guess based on that. But my specialty is definitely not random number generators. Yeah. I, I just know that the computers aren't truly random. Yeah. I, I think, I guess that kind of makes sense. Right. But, um, there was a woman who was a statistician who lived in Texas and she won the lotto like three or four times. And I think they like told her she needed to knock it off or something. No was, way. Yeah. The, the story I heard. Hmm. Um, and then statisticians or data scientists who get in trouble when they go gamble because they can count cards because their brain's like a calculator. Mine's not like that. I wish it was. But Me too. Me too. <laughs> I could do a lot of, I could do a lot of good with some of that uh, casino money. Yeah. Yeah. I think, weren't you telling me about like uh, Bayesian something versus, there's two schools of thought. Ah, Bayesian versus frequentist. Yes, and we were talking about that, and somehow we got down the rabbit hole of uh, how that relates to the universe. I don't know. Oh, geez. Um, well, I mean, there's a lot of different ways I could relate that to the universe. I don't remember how or why <laughs> I was saying that. Uh, but frequentist, I'm sure someone's going to skewer me. But um, there are people that believe very strongly. Bayesian is, I have a prior belief that this environment's going to behave a certain way, and I take that prior belief and I project it into the future. And frequentists are, everything is equally likely no matter what the prior belief is. It, just because it's never happened before doesn't mean it won't ever happen. Mm. Um, which are two very different ways of looking at life, I suppose. Yeah. There are, I've seen statisticians literally scream at each other over this topic area. They feel very, very strongly. And there's a whole host of analytics you use in each space. Mm. I think that you just take the analytics from each space that are most appropriate to what you're working in. And you shouldn't pick one side of the line or the other. That's what I was going to say. You made it sound initially like you got to either be in one camp or the other. But I'm always like, well, why not use both? I mean, both of them have good tools and work differently in best practice situations. And mm -hmm. But, I mean, I was talking with a friend the other day, um, and, like, the idea is is that you have your own free will or everything is preordained, which kind of, to me, mm -hmm. feels like Bayesian versus frequentist. So maybe that's the universe aspect I was getting into in that space. Oh, gotcha. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that makes my gears turn a little bit in my head because I'm wondering, you know, there it goes into one of my favorite topics of the nature of the universe and theology. And you can cut this out, but I'll just tell you what I'm thinking anyway, you know, because <laughs> if, if God knows everything, do you have free will? And so um, I'd argue yes, but still a lot of people say, well, if God knows what I'm doing, then how could there be free will? Because he already knows how everything's going to end. And that one, uh, I always love just talking about that kind of stuff. But 
Yeah, I think uh, I think we've had a few talks like that a couple of years back too, and I've just always enjoyed that kind of stuff. Like, I'm the person who doesn't shy away from those conversations just because I don't get offended. Like, um, great, you believe something different than me. I want to learn more about it. And I really wish more people would have that attitude because how do you learn and become a better person except through those conversations of, yes, I know you're different, but let's have a conversation. Like someone vilified me because I asked about their cuisine. I was like, I've never had um, that style of dish. What are some things in that dish? And they're like, you're a bigot. And I was like, uh, because I asked what style of dishes are in your cuisine, Whoa. because I've never been to your country. I've never seen a restaurant that says your country name on the front of it. And I am genuinely interested. And how else do you learn? But by asking, and I was just, you know, in this day and age, apparently even asking what type of cuisine someone's culture has is offensive. Apparently I would take that as an anti bigot. Cause you're like trying to actually make a connection with somebody and get to know them better. And you know, learn out of pure curiosity. So that one does not make sense to me. Uh, And I was genuinely curious. I wasn't trying to be rude or anything. So, but a lot of people are very sensitive in this day and age, but I wish more people would be curious and ask questions and not be afraid about the recourse of, oh crap, I asked a question and now someone's offended. Yeah. I think people just take things a little too personally and they need to separate their beliefs from the conversation and not feel so attacked on everything. Like, uh, this was back a um, couple elections ago. I told somebody who didn't believe the same thing I did, who I voted for, and why I voted for them. <laughs> they literally slammed the laptop and walked out of the room. And I was like, that's weird. I, I didn't, like, I just matter-of-factly just told him my opinion. Like, this is what I think. Here's why I did what I did. And uh, they got so angry, they, they just stormed out. Uh, and the kicker was I, I voted third party because I, I did not uh, agree with both candidates. And I just said, well, <laughs> got to go with my conscience on this one. So throwing away my vote, sure, okay, but why do you have to get so mad? Fun fact about voting third party, because so many people did it, I think a few election cycles ago, that third parties some of them don't have to pay fees to get on the ballot, which allows them to actually use funds for other things than paying for their candidate to be on the ballot in every single state, Ooh. which is not throwing away your vote. See, I helped. I helped. <laughs> I did something. Maybe. Um, yeah, there's just weird things like that. And um, I don't know. I, I like to talk to people about their beliefs because um, they're always different than mine. And I always come out knowing something from you know, something I never knew and going, wow. Um, and it was really cool. I was able to talk to a friend who had completely different beliefs than me. Um, I know they're, they're really different, but, um, she had asked me, you know, um, what do you think God thinks of this situation? And it was like, I know we believe different things, but I'll, I'll share what I believe. And it's just really, really cool because we were still able to find a commonality uh, in our in our different beliefs and still just be able to share our ideas and that's what communication is sharing ideas and so I think if I were to like say let's change the world and uh, just a magical wish it'd be for people to communicate again without getting so angry and fired up we need to have a stronger sense of community and yeah. I I think that is absolutely necessary I know a lot of people argue that well we have a strong sense of community online 
but I feel like you can find people extremely similar to you online, but mm. you don't get the same type of chemicals that your body will produce when you interact with someone online versus in person looking at their face and, you know, laughing with them. And the experience is completely different. Uh, so I think having a sense of community um, and part of the reason everyone might be so charged is because we've been so isolated for a year mm. and not socialized, not in our communities. And hopefully we can all get back to being together and hanging out and not getting supercharged by th different beliefs. Yeah, I think... That community is a big one, but also just, like, not having these conversations online. Like, when has anybody ever convinced you over a Twitter feed or a Facebook chat that you're wrong? I don't think anyone's ever been like, you're right, I'm sorry, um, I believe what you believe now. But you go sit down with somebody and have a cup of coffee with them or lunch, and you're just able to chat like we're chatting now. You know, the goal is not to change their mind, but just to, again, exchange that information. Both people are walking away happy and satisfied with their lunch. And um, I think that disconnect that the Internet is wrong, it's, it's brought so much um, amazing things to our world. We have information at our fingertips. But uh, I think the negative side of that is that people are losing how to be polite and, and know how to interact with people. That, and uh, it, for me, I thought, well, I'm just going to start following all the people on Twitter that I don't believe uh, or agree with just so I have I'm not in that echo chamber and I'm, I'm starting to see other people's opinions and, um, you know, why they believe they believe. And and yeah, just not to have that reinforcement of only the people that are like me or something. I mean, that's how people get into these very extreme views is they just keep following the thoughts and ideas that are exactly the same to theirs and Another reason why people behave so badly over the internet is because you're not human if I can punch in a comment mm -hmm. and then walk away. Yeah. I can say whatever I want via this comment and be as rude as I want because you're not a human, it's just a comment. And But saying something rude to my face is a lot more difficult because you have to deal with the reaction, mm -hmm. you have to deal with other people hearing how rude you are, you have to deal with hearing how you're rude in your own ears. Yeah. And it's just everyone just needs to be kinder. Just yes. please. That's all I ask. Yes. <sighs> but so life advice and everything in that <laughs> space. <laughs> uh, what would you say is some life advice that you would give your kids that you think will stand the test of time? You you have two kids. They're both boys, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what was something, you know, you think will help them even 20, 30, 40 years from now? Never give up. Um, I think if you want something bad enough, you got to go for it. And I've had that firsthand many times to learn that where um, you fail, then you get up and you push harder. And if you fail more, you just got to push harder. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes there's there's still scenarios where, you know, if it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. But, um I'll just tell you, I had so much trouble with uh, calculus in, in college, and um, I remember studying really hard, going through, getting like an F on my first exam, and just going, what am I going to do? I can't get into the computer science classes that I really desperately want to get into until I get through Calc 1. And I just remember sitting in the parking lot at the university thinking, like, do I quit? 
or do I just try harder? And I just thought, I got to try harder. And uh, so I just pictured like, okay, who knows calculus really well? I'm going to go bother them. When's the TA hours? When's the teacher's hours? Like I knew everyone's schedule after that. I looked it up, started making that a priority. And I think even then I might have still got a second one. And I just, I pushed harder and harder and I got a C minus. I got through it. And there's just been a lot of that in my life. There's, I mean, coding is, is actually, for me at least, it wasn't like super easy to pick up. There, uh, my first language was like getting into Bash and um, I was learning all sorts of stuff on, on Linux and the command line and I got into PHP and then I got into some low level C and I had no idea how C worked and I was like, this is really confusing compared to Bash. And so I was, uh, I don't know, pretty, pretty much a noob and I could make things work, but I couldn't tell you why they worked. And, um, like, I don't feel like college led me to be successful, but it taught me how to teach myself. And then once I kind of unlocked that, um, now I feel like, well, if I don't know it, I know I can go learn it. Um, and that's where I think that don't give up attitude comes is if you don't know how to do it, don't say, I don't know how and just shut the door. Just say, well, I'm going to go learn how then. Um, and then even talking to not my kids yet because they're three and seven months old, but talking <laughs> the to seven my, month old is the one that really needs the life advice, right? Yeah, he does. <laughs> like, hey, you're almost crawling. Just get up all the way up and start calling. <laughs> um, no, I think talking to sometimes it's my nephews or sometimes it's uh, some younger cousins. Um, and sometimes, you know, I just ask them, well, what do you like doing? Or, um, you know, what do you want to do after this? And, you know, I know there's that whole, like, don't pressure anyone to figure out what their, what their life is going to be before, you know, at such a young age. I've heard that before, you know. Really? Yeah. Or it's like, I don't know if I, but I, I'm kind of like, what's the what's the point in asking somebody if whether they want to know if they want to do something or if they don't know what they want to do yet? It's just a question, right? But I've, I've ran into some people who are like, by asking that question too young, you're putting pressure on these kids to have it all figured out at age 15 or something. But I mean... When I was like six, I wanted to be a fireman. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my mom was like, I don't think that's a good idea, Sarah. And I was like, I want to be a fireman. Mm -hmm. And so then we went and visited the fire. Uh, what do you call those? Fire halls, fire. Fire station? Yes, fire stations. <laughs> yes, those. We went and visited a fire station. And, you know, I saw the firemen and I saw their truck. And then I decided that maybe that wasn't for me. Yeah. But I think that's. I mean, every kid has something they probably want to be. Right now, my daughter's like, I'm going to have two kids. And I'm like, nice. I hope you have a career, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, my point out of that was uh, there's a lot of times I've asked this question to some younger individuals, and they almost put themselves down and kind of like count themselves out of the race. Like, well, I'm not really good at math, and so, you know, I'm not going to go. That's, that's like a common thing. Everyone's like, that's their exit. I'm just not good at math. There's no other subject that people say, mm -hmm. I'm just not good at social studies. Yeah. <laughs> people do that for math. Mm -hmm. I had to teach math at one point to like high schoolers and college students. Yeah. And that was like, I'm just not good at math. So that's my little, little soapbox. I was like, yeah, well, it's, it's just a bunch of rules. You just got to learn a bunch of rules and apply them. And then when you get to the higher level math and you figure out 
wait, there is real world application for this. Then I think it gets really exciting again. Um, like I think the, the thing that really got me fired up was figuring out that how a calculator really works was using like sequences or series mm-hmm. behind the scenes. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that, you know, lines up with programming and technology and how this calculator works. And so, um, that, that was really cool. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of kids are, are saying, you know, I'm not good at math. And so I don't think I'm going to go for that STEM degree. And I'm like, no, please do it. Like the future is using your mind. It's not always this brute force, uh, kind of stuff. Um, you know, and I think there's plenty of hard workers who are doing manual labor and I'm not saying anything bad about that, but I'm just saying, I think the future where automation's going is, you know, everyone's going to have to be using their minds or the majority of humans will. Um, and I had one other one other person tell me um, this will probably make you really angry because uh, I, I don't know. It's just somebody said, "Well, a real man's job is working with their hands," and I'm not going to do any of that, you know, uh, techie have they, stuff. Have they looked in an IT department? I'm like the only girl ninety percent of the time at any meeting ever. Like, yeah. do they understand most of IT is men? I mean. If men want to give it up, that's fine. Well, I'm sure the ladies will have no problem taking over. Well, <laughs> I think women are proven to multitask better than men. So, I mean, I know my wife does more than me. So, but yeah, I mean, just comments like that where you're thinking, okay, now you're saying certain roles are for certain sexes. And uh, I just, I'm already, I wanted to punch that guy in the face. Uh, <laughs> just say because well, I mean, like, that's kind of like a personal jab yeah. because you are a man yeah. in technology. It was it was my brother in law, and I was like, dude. But uh, I have a roof over my head. I provide for my family, and um, I'm I'm you know I'm going places. But um, <laughs> you're living out of your truck right now, like, and you're saying like because this all came out of I basically offered um, my brother in law. I'd say. You know, come to my house, shout at me. I'll teach you how to work. I'll get you the curriculum you need. Like, don't need to even go to a booting, uh, coding boot camp. Like, I will get you to where you need to go. Um, you just need to show up and learn. Um, and there, there's those people that, like, I guess that's where the hard grit comes from is if you want it bad enough and you're going to put the time in and you're going to take it serious, I think you can learn anything you want in this life. Um and that's what I was trying to inspire out of this guy. Um, but uh, I've noticed that insecure people lash out at other people. So usually if someone says something insulting to me, I realize they have a problem and that's why they did it. Not because mm. I've done anything wrong. And so I think he's just might be afraid to try. Yeah. And it's probably really daunting to sit at a computer for some people. Yeah. Whereas the rest of us, everyone's like, come on to the dinner table. Stop. Yeah. Stop coding. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And I, I mean, maybe that happens in other, um, I don't know, other vocations. Like my best friend is a nurse. He's a guy. But I think traditionally there's a lot more uh, women nurses than men. And so I think he gets a lot of questions of like, why isn't a woman in here or something like that? It's just messed up. It's like. Come on, if you if you want to do it, go and do it, you know. I mean, looking at things that are traditional roles, um, to take like a slight deviation, 
a lot of roles that were previously women, uh, when they started becoming a high earning area, mm-hmm. men flooded into that area. For mm-hmm. example, doing brewing of beer used to be a side hustle that women did. And then men mm-hmm. realized that it was profitable and now it's mostly male dominated space. Same with computing. It mostly was a female space about, mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, everyone's seen the spaceship, yeah. uh, one where all the computers were women. Uh, so it isn't, you know, me just saying things. Oh, yeah. And now it's extremely male dominated. The next area they actually see this happening in is nursing. Nursing is a well-paying low, like you don't have to do a lot of education field. And so that space is starting to see a lot more men and they're expecting it to be male saturated because men typically mm-hmm. go for higher paying roles and the female roles just usually aren't. Um, and that's just something consistently I was seeing when I was reading something the other day. So hmm interesting you brought it up yeah oh it fires me up just whenever somebody says you can't do something uh or when they say i can't do something because xyz and it's really just an excuse i'm just like that's why you're not successful because you're making stupid excuses like oh just fires me up (laughs) okay so some really quick questions favorite programming language definitely gonna have to just stick with COBOL on this one no, no, no. Fortran, right? Fortran. You know what? I joked about that, and uh, it turns out that I was interviewing somebody for a data analyst, and uh, they actually said Fortran was my favorite language. And I thought they were joking, but they were serious, and I was like, oh, I feel bad now that I was joking about Fortran. Oh. But, uh, well, I, I think they, they had a a geology or geoscience background, they're still using a lot of Fortran for computation. And uh, this individual fell in love with it. So I was like, okay, that's a that's a fair assessment. For me, um, I think I was getting on the functional programming language, Ben, and I was really liking Elixir, but it's really hard to find Elixir developers. Um, so right now, I'd say whatever has the most market share is my favorite, which to me is like bouncing back between uh, JavaScript and Python just because everyone's ran into the problems I already have and there's already a library for it. (laughs) And or uh, Stack Overflow comment or question that 50 people have responded with proper answers for because someone else has run into the problem. And Mm -hmm. then the real question becomes, how do you program without Stack Overflow? (sighs) Yeah. A lot more Googling on other sites. <laughs> Start reading the manual like you should. Uh, oh, ouch. <laughs> <laughs> favorite technology stack. Ooh, favorite technology stack for data engineering or for web development or for... It's entirely open-ended. You could answer each one separately. I have to. Okay. I have to. Well, I'd say for web development, I'm on this... Uh, Next.js vendor right now. It's really, really awesome. It has server-side rendering, client-side rendering, and static site generation, and it's like React on steroids. Um, so front-end is React, back-end's like Node and TypeScript, and then use whatever uh, database you want. Um, I'm still kind of, I think, a relational guy unless you need a non-relational database. So um, yeah, I think that's a pretty good stack. Uh, you can p- deploy that out to like Vercel or Netlify, start going with the Jamstack. So you actually just deploy 
your website has static files that live on a CDN. And with the Jamstack, uh, you really care about um, like JavaScript, APIs, and markup language that makes up the Jam. Um, and so everything is going this serverless route. So even backends, entire uh, computing backends can run in a Lambda function, can run serverless and still scale out. Um, so you're not having to worry about building a Kubernetes cluster and making sure that's going to auto scale and managing that. Kubernetes is great, but why set that all up if you got some serverless functions to do everything? So um, I'm going to get hated. If anyone sees this, they're going to be like, I hate, uh, <laughs> I hate serverless because blah, 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 blah. And I'm going to be like, yeah, that was a problem five years ago, but it's been fixed. And uh, for data, I'd have to say um, completely on the other end. I, I, I don't want to use JavaScript for data stuff, so I'm always uh, jumping right into Python, SQL. Uh, DBT is another tool I learned last year where um, – I'm just so it kind of made me fall in love with data engineering again um, because you write all of your transformations for ELT just in plain JavaScript with some Jinja 2 markup language to actually automate some of the, the more tedious aspects. So you're not repeating your SQL and um, and then Airflow to kind of do all the orchestrations. And then um, I'm, I swear I'm not getting paid by them, but Fivetran is the coolest company out there because they've automated about 90% of any company's uh, ETL that they need to do, oh, at least wow. from extracting it to getting it in your data warehouse or data lake. Now, once it's there, like you got to worry about doing the rest of those analytical models. But this sounds like my type of company. Yeah, Fivetran's awesome. Um, I had the pleasure of testing them out and implementing that. And I was just, I think I automated myself out of a job. I was like, Phew, man, you guys made it too easy. What am I supposed to do now? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I really do still like to stick with those open source projects. So that's why I always have to mention Airflow and DBT. Um, DBT is really kind of almost made their own, um, I guess, job description out there. There's the analytics engineer. Have you heard anything about that one? Um, I mean, I've heard machine learning engineer and then data scientist data engineer, data analyst. It's like, there's like a cornucopia of all these names in the space. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because I just thought there was data engineers and then data scientists and data analysts. And then this term popped up, analytics engineer. And I think they invented it from uh, the ground up of what an analytics engineer is. And so they seem to redefine this and and they've been really great at marketing, but only because they've created a really good tool in the in the space. Um, that's something that somebody needed to come and kind of shake it up a little bit, and they did exactly that. Wow, that's really cool. It's kind of might be similar to a machine learning engineer, but uh, those are people that just take data science models and put them into production. Is that mm -hmm. what a analytics engineer? They so they kind of broke it down as like a data engineer is more about extracting and loading the data somewhere. The analytics engineer is taking that generally and creating models and doing more of that cleanup work, transformation work. Maybe they're doing uh, dimensional modeling, getting it ready for the data analysts. The data analyst is taking the finished models and creating more of those BI uh, visualizations and things like that. And so they're almost like the middleware between, I could go a little bit into the data engineering route, or I could start doing the data analyst route and being more of that customer-facing analytics. 
Um, but right now I'll just stick myself in all these SQL transformations and kind of clean it up here and, and uh, start making that single source of truth that everyone says. Yeah, the ground truth. <laughs> I've met very many ground truths. So I'm, yeah. yeah. Well, do you have any closing thoughts or anything you'd like to share? Um, I think just for anyone watching this who is maybe beginning their career in tech or um, maybe still just deciding if they want to do that, um, go for it. Don't wait. Um, just go for it. There's tons of resources out there. There are so much learning resources and there's so many people that want to help other people. I think this space, there's a lot of people that just write blog posts to just to help other people. I mean, you mentioned stack overflow, but now there's just so much other blogs popping up here and there, YouTube videos, and then, you know, find your tech friends, start asking them questions. And, um, so I just want to leave that note of being encouraging and say, you can do it. Mm -hmm. Um, if I can do it, <laughs> you can do it. Uh, you just gotta, you know, really give it your all. And don't be afraid to reach out to people you don't even know that are in tech. I, I have people all the time reach out to me to review their resumes um, because English is not their first language. And I tell them how we like to see it formatted in the United States. Um, and that's, you know, just I want everyone to succeed, especially in tech. And, yeah. And there are a lot of other people that feel the same way. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, I just want people to believe in themselves enough to take a risk and maybe that risk isn't starting a company but maybe it is changing their career path and so that's what gets me fired up and um yeah i mean my offer stands if anyone has any questions about data engineering or uh, the little i know about entrepreneurship so far hit me up well i'm excited for your journey and maybe we can have you come back on here after you're a big famous ceo Oh, man, I, we'll see what happens. Maybe I'll have a failure story and then another successful story, and we'll see. It'll be a journey, though. Well, thank you for coming on to Sarah and Tech. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Sarah in Tech. Feel free to email me at sarah at sarahintech.net or follow me on Instagram at sarahintech. Hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>